Rights listeners, and welcome to this, the first episode of Season 4 of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host, as always. Very excited to be back with some new episodes. Had sort of a break this summer, but I'm finding that my plan of having several breaks between seasons to relax and unwind and not worry about podcast stuff has turned out to be largely a failure. I end up working on all kinds of podcast stuff in the breaks between seasons. I've been doing live episodes at Black Rabbit Mead. I would love to see some of you at those. It's the fourth Wednesday of every month we're doing live episodes. But I am excited to be back with our normal, regular, long-form episodes with a bunch of really great guests this season. Really excited about many of the upcoming episodes. Also this season, I'm very excited that I have a co-producer, Lynn Lazaro from the Reynolds School of Journalism, is helping me out this season. So it's fantastic to be able to work with the journalism school, to work with a student who is interested in going into the media world. And Lynn has been hugely, hugely helpful already. So very excited to have a partner for this season four of Renoites. This first episode is all about organized labor, about unionizing, about Labor Day. Next Monday is Labor Day, and there's an event here in Reno called Labor Fest for our local labor organizations to communicate with the public, to celebrate. It's at Idlewild Park next Monday, and Mike Pilcher from the Northern Nevada Central Labor Council came on the show to talk all about organized labor, unionizing, Labor Fest, and it was a fantastic conversation. I learned a ton, and I hope that listeners will as well. This season, one of my focuses for the show is creating a little bit more financial sustainability for the show. I've been doing this podcast for about a year and a half, and it is entirely self-funded and listener-funded. I don't have any paid ads. I never have. I hope that I won't have to in the future. But the only way that works is if contributions from listeners just like you help make the show financially sustainable. It takes a lot of time and a little bit of money to run this show. I have to pay for hosting. I have to pay for software for editing, for graphics, all those kind of things. And donations from listeners really make a huge difference both for creating the show and promoting the show. So if you enjoy the show, I hope that you'll support on Patreon. I've created a bunch of different levels at which you can support from as low as $3 a month. I call that one the tip jar. It's basically if you would put a buck in the tip jar for this episode, I hope that you will go to patreon.com slash and just sign up to be a regular $3 a month contributor. Every dollar really makes a huge difference. And if you're really interested in contributing at a higher level and supporting a project like this in a way that really makes a difference, that covers some of these expenses that can help the show grow, there's also options for you. And those come with some fun perks, some merch, some shout outs on the podcast, things like that. So please check out patreon.com slash renoites. And speaking of shout outs, huge, huge thank you to several of my VIP plus level donors. Vicky Musney from DJ Trivia has been such a huge supporter of the show from day one. Thank you so much, Vicky, for helping the show exist. Abby Whitaker from the Abby Agency, really appreciate your support of the show. And Mike Van Houten from Downtown Makeover, which is a fantastic local blog that is documenting all of the changes in our downtown area, specifically around development. So thank you so much to all of my patrons generally and those higher level patrons in particular, you really do make a huge difference in allowing a project like this to exist and thrive. As always, my email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R at renoites.com. If you have any feedback, any suggestions for guests, any ideas of topics we should cover, please let me know. I'd really love to hear from 
listeners. I want to make sure I'm making the show the best they can possibly be. So again, that's Connor at Renoites.com. Don't hesitate to reach out. And now, this week's guest for the first episode of Season 4, Mike Pilcher. Mike Pilcher, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, you're welcome. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Today's episode is all about organized labor, and this episode will be out the Tuesday before Labor Day. And I know we have an event called Labor Fest, the first time here in Reno at Idlewild Park, and I'm excited to learn a little bit about what Labor Fest is, why we're doing it. But to start, I'd like to learn just a little bit about your history with organized labor. So I know you worked with the fire department here in Reno, and now you're with the Northern Nevada Central Labor Council. And I don't know exactly what that is. So can you start by just telling me a little bit about what the Northern Nevada Central Labor Council is and how you got involved in union labor in the first place? Great questions. Thank you, Connor. So I started my career in unions uh, in 1988 with Local 731 of the International Association of Firefighters. I was a firefighter and had a career with the city of Reno for almost 32 years, retiring out as a battalion chief. Around 2011, one of my colleagues suggested that I become a a trustee, take his position on this Northern Nevada Central Labor Council Board of Trustees. And I think about a year or two later, maybe 2013, I missed one meeting and they nominated me for president. (laughs) So the the next meeting I showed up and all in favor, I, and it was unanimous. So I'm really honored to have that position as president of the Northern Nevada Central Labor Council. Now, what is a central labor council? Every state in the nation has Uh, central labor councils. And what they are is geographic locations. They're geographically based. And it's a portal for the affiliates, union workers to come together to share and exchange information to raise the standards of living in their communities through the value of work. Gotcha. So is it all different types of unions that are kind of under the umbrella of the labor council? Or is it just a way for various unions to have like a central hub of communication? Yes, many different type of professional craft sector unions. We have the building trades, which could be plumbers and pipe fitters, a sheet metal, iron workers, operating engineers that work in the mines. So we have miners, we have communication workers of America, we have letter carriers and American Postal Workers Union, firefighters, and on and on and on. So by affiliation with our organization, there's a collective voice and collective representation. We figure out if there's an injury to one of us, it's kind of an injury to all of us. And those central hubs, the main goal for me and my my, uh, trustees is to foster solidarity. And in a word, solidarity is workers coming together for common cause. I know we mentioned you worked with the fire department, and I know the public sector has always had more union membership. Why do you think it is that firefighters, police, teachers, um, some of these more public sector jobs tend to be more amenable to unions, or why unions work better in those fields than in some of the private industry? Yeah, I would say since the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935 and upheld by the Supreme Court in 1937, which leveled the playing field, there's been a constant, persistent unleveling of that playing field state by state, laws created to subvert our rights to organize and to bargain. For instance, in the private sector, they hold captive audience meetings, their orientations, and then their annual that say, if organized labor comes to you, let us know, you know, please let us know. It's no good for you. Those dues only are self-serving for the unions and will make you know, our price of our commodity go up, our goods or our service, and there'll be layoffs, which is nonsense. So 
the private sector, uh, to a great degree, has undermined the rights of workers. Where the public sector, which has also been under fire by, by big corporate America and big tyrants that don't like to see labor have a seat at the table, has withstood that. And it's because of the engagement of the employees themselves. I mean, do you think that government employees or public sector employees are less subject to that kind of interference from business? Is that the reason you think that they're more comfortable with unions? Or is it something in the culture, you think, of government work? I know a lot of times in government jobs, it's long-term careers. And right now in private industry, it's a lot of gig work and seasonal work. And those things don't always align much with the union idea of a long career in one field. I always associate unions with like the, the union pension. Like you work in a job for a long time, and a lot of people just don't have those kind of long careers anymore. Right. Do you think there's something also just about the type of work? Yes, I think the stability. If you go to work for a local government, you can pretty much count on job security and stability. You can live where you grew up and uh, have one job you know, for 30 years. That's very attractive. And part of the answer to that question is the grand bargain. In our state, a year after Ronald Reagan enacted the, the, the Brown Act in 1968, in 1969, Republican Senator Carl Dodge enacted the Dodge Act, which was NRS 288, which was the grand bargain. It meant that the public employees could organize and, and become unions without the ability to strike. So it was a hallmark moment, no doubt, but it was also reassurance that public sector services would have continuity and that we would settle our dispute resolutions at the table rather than walk out on a strike to bring attention to them. So it's a great deal. Does that take one of your bargaining tools off the table, though? Like, does it make it harder to be a union in the public sector if you don't have that as a card to play? It, at times, yes. Yes. The, the right to withhold your work is the last thing that workers have, organized workers have. It really is to, to withhold your work and say, no, enough is enough. But what we've done in the state of Nevada has been very uh, successful as being very proactive. We have a, a committee on political education where we educate our members on who to vote for, who to support. And when we get into the line of questions, we don't, we don't, we never address wedge issues. You know, we, we don't care about guns or gender orientation or, or you know, other, a lot of the wedge issues out there. We, we advocate for your opportunities. You know, if, if you want to buy a gun, you can afford to. Uh, if you want to go to church on Sunday rather than having to go to work, you and your spouse to support you, we want you to do that. And regardless of who you marry, we want you to be able to afford to buy a house, put down roots, pay property taxes, buy a vehicle from the local dealership here, pay those fees, you know, and the return on that is a, a robust public sector that can deliver the services that the private sector needs. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that I've always kind of associated unions as being focused primarily fundamentally on workers, like wages and working conditions above all of the other things. To me, at least, it's always seemed to make unions clear in their intention to stay above the fray of the kind of day-to-day -day politics and social issues. Do you see it that way? Absolutely. We are the quintessential free market model. Labor collectively agrees to sell their labor for an agreed-upon price. This is no different than, you know, the commerce sector, Every day you go to you know the gas station, that's what you're going to pay. That's the agreed upon price at the pump, whether you like it or not. Uh, you go to the grocery store. When you check out, you can't negotiate. You know, it's a set price. In the commerce world of business and industry, there are contracts interwoven throughout their ability to provide services or goods, and those contracts are an agreed upon price. And that's what we do in organized labor. We sell our labor for an agreed upon price. 
and it's mutually beneficial. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'd like to go a little bit back to your experience. So you worked with the fire department, you said over 30 years. So what was your first kind of introduction to union labor in general and what brought you to working with the fire department? Well, what brought me into firefighting was my brother. He suggested uh, I take this test. We had grown up next door to a firefighter who we idolized. He, it seemed like he was always there in the community for something. While other uh, dads are, were out to um, you know, work every day, he had some times and some days off. So during the summer, you know, in pipe bursts or something, he'd be there in the neighborhood helping one of the homes you know, fix that. He would coach Little League. He'd be part of the community. He'd help repair vehicles if something if somebody needed a jump start in their battery. You know, he was just one of those great guys that in the neighborhood, and we always idolized him. Seeing him drive home in his uniform and his badge, and and so we always thought, you know, as every a lot of young children do, I want to be a firefighter when I grow up. And then you know, you go to school, and I went to college prep school, and I was you know, studying, going to take MCATs and whatnot. And my brother convinced me to take the test, and so the process is the civil service announces that there are openings and that is an open test. And there may be some MQ, some minimum qualifications like a paramedic, sometimes not, or a basic EMT. And then you sign up and you take a test. There's a written test and there's an oral test and there's a physical agility test. And I did very well. The, I took it 19, I think it was 1987 with about 3,300 other folks and did very well. And that's the process for becoming a firefighter. Now, if I didn't have any background in firefighting, but many of my colleagues, the 24, the group of 24 that were hired with me did. They had wildland experience or they had structure, a municipal experience, uh, and it gave them a leg up. So I had, I had a lot of catching up to do. And then were you already involved in union organizing or did you have any familiarity with unions when you joined in? Or was that kind of your introduction to union work? That was my introduction. In fact, myself and one of my colleagues were the last two to sign up. I really didn't have any clue. And, uh, you know, once it was explained to me that, you know, we advocate for you, this gives us a seat at the table rather than being on the menu. And you don't have to go advocate for yourself. Like I'm working hard. I deserve, I think I deserve a cost of living increase. You know, those types of things that I'd experienced in the past. Wow. What a difference in change. So once I subscribed, I was all in. And I paid attention to the union leaders at the time, some um, brilliant folks. In there. Chuck Laking is one I'd like to, to note out, Jan Johnson. Uh, they really set a, a tone that labor is valuable, right? And what we do is valuable. And best practices and policies really come from the ground up. So we should have that seat at the table and express those best policies and practices to management. And let's try to implement them. And I was hooked. So years later, I became an executive board member, and then I be became the head of the political action committee and uh, really enjoyed my tenure there as a leader in 731, local 731. And then that developed into the position over here at the Central Labor Council and then also to, onto the Nevada State AFL-CIO, where I'm an executive board member as well. So it's... Um, it's been a fun, a rewarding career. It hasn't been easy. It takes a lot of work and it's about building relationships and networking. Um, you don't get to make all the rules, but you can try to convince someone to see things through a different lens, right? From the worker's perspective. And that really pays off in building those relationships because then you have elected officials or business leaders in the community that advocate for you. Is a big part of what you do now or what you've done over the years. Um, the educational part of letting workers know what the union is, how it works, why they should be a part of it, kind of the, I don't want to say like selling or persuasion, 
but the the information piece because I think that there, as you mentioned, there's a lot of information they're getting from their employers that may not be accurate or may not be what you want them to hear. So how much of your job is that information and kind of letting people know what it is, how it works, and having that kind of central role in being informative to workers? Uh, for my position, it's about 90%. Uh, that's what we do. When, when I was elected president, I, I, I championed this, empower. And the th- first three uh, letters of empower EMP. So we're going to educate, we're going to motivate, we're going to participate because the labor movement doesn't move forward without you. Right. And it moves forward by you standing up and taking a step forward and speaking out. And so that's really what we've done is educate uh, our members on how to speak out, educate our members on what good policies and practices look like, educate the community leaders, educate elected officials. So it's absolutely about education because many in our community don't know what unions are. They've gotten kind of a black eye, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And I don't know if they've rebounded. Well, they have, they have rebounded, but it took, it took a while uh, for 10, 20 years of my career to rebound to where it is today that we have workers at Amazon or Starbucks or across the nation saying, oh my God, this is the answer, right? Collective bargaining is the answer. And this, the history is there. In 1948, the United Nations got together and provided a declaration of human rights. And remember, this is on the heels of fascism, dictatorship, and totalitarianism. And in those declaration of human rights from 1948 are two things. Workers all should have the right to organize and workers all should have the right to collectively bargain. They saw that these brilliant leaders, right, who changed the, the scope and landscape of our world and countered dictatorship, authoritarian fascism, where the business and state were in bed together. And they countered that with these simple things, two tenets for workers to be able to share in the prosperity and level the playing field so we wouldn't have gross inequality. And that still resonates today. The same holds true. Yeah, I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about that kind of history and the change over the years and decades of union membership and, and the public perception of union over the years. You mentioned Nevada specifically earlier to this grand bargain. What's your understanding or thoughts about Nevada versus other places in the country as far as union organizing goes? Well, Nevada ranks fairly high. Um, nationally, uh, organized labor is, of the workforce is about 11% and growing. Nevada's 15%. And we've always held a little bit higher edge in that. And I think it's because of the great work of the folks on the shoulders who I stand, whether it was Blackie Evans or Danny Thompson or Rusty McAllister that led the, the Nevada State AFL-CIO or the Central Labor Council presidents and the members before, because I think they recognize Nevada. Uh, as uh, kind of um, a hub of union organization and opportunity, right? We're a gaming tourism town, and we rely just upon that industry primarily for a number of years, and we're diversifying now. But to not have those workers organize and unionize would be a gross mistake. So that effort and the culinary unions uh, unite here uh, has paid off tremendously. The return on investment is self-sufficiency. Right. It's like the old Fram commercials. I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Fram commercials. And and the kid would say, Dad, why do you use Fram filters? You know, oil filters, air, they cost more. And he'd say, son, you can pay now or you can pay later. <laughs> so I think that's the mentality that has been adopted. And a lot of the businesses see that true. And it's becoming more and more of an understanding that it, you can pay a worker a decent wage and a decent salary and have a pension. We can 
have those things that all workers want, right? To buy a house, put down roots, maybe go camping or go on vacation with your family a little bit, have a quality life, and then have a pension and retire debt free, right? That's that, that that is the goal, and so unions advocate for that. And to be, we we want to be self sufficient, so we're not reliant upon uh, earned benefits. Uh, used to be called social safety net, and not have to ramp up uh, those those funds. So really, that's the goal of unions is, is self-sufficiency and, live, and raise the standards of living, have a good quality of life. And I think more and more businesses are starting to understand that's critical for their workers. If you want to attract and retain workers, that is a big part of it. Is that one of the main selling points when you're negotiating with businesses? Like, this is win-win. This is better for both of us. Like, you want to retain employees. This is how you can do it. So it's not just about the workers, but you know, it's supposed to be sustainability, right? You want people to be able to stay in these jobs for a long time. So how much, I guess, is your job educating businesses, which you know might be seen as you're in conflict with, but really you're on the same page or you're on the same side, let's say, of trying to take care of workers generally? Yeah, it's a big part. Each one of our affiliate leaders, the presence of their organizations, their unions, uh, meets on a regular basis with the management. Uh, and it's critical to have that. It's a symbiotic relationship. They want to know what's going on, the boots on the ground, and they get that feedback. And we come to some um, agreements with you know basic principles or policies, standards of procedure, operating procedures. We want efficiency. We want a high productivity and efficiency model because that attracts more workers to us too as well. We we don't stand for you know the old term you know some of the old. Uh, misunderstandings that unions only protected the the weak or the, that's nonsense. Uh, I can tell you firsthand, my son-in-law is in one of the trades and he got tuned up not too long ago. Hey, you better pick your game up, you know, and he had this awareness that's really paying off for him. And in my profession, there's an academy uh, and then there's a year of probation. And we're always on uh, those folks to, hey, step your game up, step your game up, right? It's for, unions want constant improvement and performance. In, in self and education, there's usually um, some curricula and instruction that's lifelong. There's components of that throughout the unions, which we support. We ask for funding for it. We help co-fund it. So, yeah, educating the, the workers and the employers at the same time is critical, and we do both. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of overlap of the interests, the private and corporate and business world and the union world. But... That's not how you would see it to watch the news sometimes or, you know, listen to pundits talk about unions. Where do you think that misunderstanding comes from? How do you try to inform the public that there's more in common than they realize or that you're working towards a lot of the same goals? Because it sounds like there's a lot of overlap that, you know, the public is not fully informed or aware of, right? Boy, you hit the nail on the head, Connor, with that question. You really did. And the difference is national level versus local government. And I'll give you one example. Last year, about this time, our own mayor in the city of Reno seconded a motion at a, the U.S. Conference of Mayors to support the Protect to Right to Organize Act. There was a re- resolution brought forth to all the mayors, and it got approved. And our own mayor seconded that motion because she knows how important that relationship is at the local government level to attract and retain, to be able to have that funding. Where the disconnect is, is at the national level, primarily. Corporations have no higher responsibility than their shareholders. So their stakeholders, the workers who create that prosperity, are the losers many times. And I'll give you one example. Rail. 
if you look at the seven rail conglomerates for class one freight, which uh, have been uh, monopolized or amalgamated to from 40-something providers, there's very little competition anymore. And so their new business model has been to lay off rail workers, some 40, 45,000 of them over the last 10 years, cut their mileage in half, and then triple the size and length of their trains. All and ha- and come up with this draconian uh, precision uh, scheduled rail policy that has maximized their profits but tremendously damaged their operational model. And so that is just one example. The corporation's responsibility to their shareholders and s- versus the stakeholders is our biggest challenge in America today. Quarterly profits above people. Uh, and so w- what we do is we, we advocate for a balance in there. Right, the union workers that who created all this prosperity should be able to share in it. When cost of living goes up seven percent, there has to be some remedy, some avenue for them to have a new contract that says we need to be able to afford to live, put fuel in our tank, send our kids to college or at least the trade schools, and have a have a same quality of life you want for your shareholders. So that's our biggest challenge right now. Is and corporations have really unleveled the playing field. They've been the primary movers of unleveling the playing field across this nation. And, and one of the great anomalies is this right to work, which is, is, is a play on wording. It's, it's really right to freeload, you know, so. Or like right to be fired without cause. <laughs> well, yeah, ex- exactly. And then right to freeload. It says basically what the Section D of Taft-Hartley allowed, uh, enabled uh, some states to do is to pass right to work laws that say if there's a union, you don't have to join it and pay dues, but they have to represent you through the negotiations, through the collective bargaining, through safety, through workman's comp, through injuries, through they, they must represent you, but you don't have to pay dues. Now, that's not, a, that's not a conservative idea to me. I'm pretty sure that freeloading has never been a conservative idea. So it's like, you know, I'm pretty sure if I don't pay dues to my gym, I don't just get to walk in and use all their, their facility, uh, you know, and equipment anymore. Yeah, I think I might have been thinking of like at-will labor, which I know is another similar concept that's in some states and not others, as far as being able to fire employees without any kind of real cause or restrictions. Can you talk just a little bit more about right to work and at-will labor and kind of how those have affected union membership? Because I think it's really interesting that that is kind of the legal underpinning of whether unions can exist or not, right? Yeah, it really has. It's devastated. Um, in the 1940s, 50s, at the peak, we were 30 to 35% organized labor in this country. It's dwindled down to 11%. That should tell you something right there. And state by state, legislature by legislature, bill by bill has undermined that ability where they've lost collective bargaining in certain states, lost legal and binding arbitration as a last remedy. And now it's meet and confer, these fancy terms that undermine. Uh, right to work is basically, like I said, right to freeload. In January, NSV asked me, confirm that. It said, if you don't uh, want to pay dues to a union, they still have to represent you. And that's ridiculous. It's like telling the Chamber of Commerce, sorry, if you don't have to pay dues, they'll still represent you. Well, I'm pretty sure, you know, they wouldn't have a chamber if they didn't uh, collect dues, right? The business world pays their dues to a chamber. Why can't workers pay their dues to an organization to have a collective representation? So it's just unfair. And the PRO Act would seek to remedy a lot of that. And the end goal is for us to reverse right to freeload across this country, a non-conservative ideology, and make sure that if you're in a union, uh, you pay dues. Now, 
if you don't agree with the politics uh, that the union, when we interview our candidates and we come to the agreement amongst our robust panel of experts, it's not a unilateral decision. I assemble in my panel at least a dozen to 15 union affiliate leaders, and we interview these candidates. And like I said, we ask them about moving the economy forward, sharing in prosperity, collective bargaining, where they support, right to work. We ask that we don't ask about the wedge issues, and then we score them and grade them. However, if our union members do not agree with that, they can opt out of paying part of their fees, uh, their uh, dues, excuse me, to the COPE, Committee on Political Education. Every union across this nation has that uh, ability for the workers to opt out of that, but they still pay the main dues for collective representation. Mm. So there is already a solution in place, right? We just need to get rid of right to work eventually. And is that what this PRO Act is that you mentioned? Partially. It's also the big part of it is to stop corporations from interference and to have consequences if they do. That's the big part of the PRO Act. And right now, like I said, captive audience meetings are standard with some corporations. You go to work or you think you're getting a great job, you know, and then they give these captive. If you see this, if you see that, you know, we'll stamp it out. And, you know, they lie to their employees that somehow the unions are going to make prices rise and there'll be layoffs and whatnot. And, and then there's interference during elections. If the workers have card, submitted enough cards, majority to have uh, an election, they interfere with that. And so the, the PRO Act would have consequences for these corporations that do, that do this. And they're bad actors, the ones that do, because their primary goal is their shareholders, not their stakeholders. And uh, that's not how we built this country. That's not what made America great. So. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some wins. Let's talk about some good stuff in the union world recently, because I know there's been much more interest in union organizing. It's been in the news a lot this year or two that organized labor is on the rise. And I think part of that was during the pandemic. I think it gave workers a lot more power, power to negotiate that they might not have had in previous years. Can you talk a little bit about what's gone on in the last few years and what you see as kind of the positives and where you see organizing going right now? Yeah, we're scrambling to organize. Yeah, it's never been seen by the American public as a better tool than right now. I think the approval rating is over two-thirds of this country believes in organized labor and the right for workers to organize. And this next generation, I tell you what, they get it. They absolutely get it. They've been sitting back watching this, you know, whether it's the millennials or the other, they get it. You know, they've been, they've had a job and then all of a sudden one day they're an at-will employee, they're gone. Whereas if they were in a union, they would have that, you know, collective representation and due process and et cetera, et cetera. So where we are, rising, organizing uh, different sectors every day and, and some same sectors, but new businesses and new corporations. And there's, it's really a tribute to all the dedicated organizers and local workers who want to do that, stand up and step forward and make the labor movement go forward. I don't have detailed numbers for you, but I know it's on the rise. And our national has been a big part of that. Liz Schuler, our new uh, national president with the AFL-CIO since Richard Trumka passed away, has been an advocate just like Richard was. Organized labor is the answer. It is absolutely the answer. You know, if you don't want to have conversations about minimum wage, fine. Organized labor is the answer. You don't want to have conversations about healthcare, we're the answer. We negotiate all those into our contracts on what is sustainable uh, and what is not. And it's as simple as that. We, no union is there to ask for more than the business or the sector can, can bear. We, we would never do that to put ourselves out of a job. It's a agreed upon, mutually negotiated contract that's in the interest uh, of both, you know, uh, parties. 
And so I think that that's become more and more um, attractive. That's what commerce does day in and day out. You know, business does with other business corporations, with other umbrellas, groups, et cetera. They negotiate contracts. What's best? You know, what's a win-win? That's what we do, too. I know over the recent years, I guess, maybe a couple decades now, that the rise of gig work and jobs being more temporary or more portable. I think a lot of people of my generation, I'm in my late 30s. um, I've grown up with this idea that the 30-year career is just a thing of the past. And I think businesses have done that on purpose because it you know gives them a lot more power if they can have their employees always moving around and not actually sticking around and demanding much for a long career. But do you see that reversing? Do you think people are going to go back to these longer term career type jobs and demand the longer term type of benefits from those jobs? Or do you think that unions need to adapt to this kind of new normal of gig work? And, you know, we have independent contractors for a bunch of different things like Uber drivers and stuff where technically these people don't even have an employer. So how are unions dealing with kind of the the new normal of this type of work? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah. At the national level, we're against it. It's a hustle, right? It's, it's to become an independent contractor. Uh, I believe it's the U.S. Bureau of Labor that has the six tenets of what a full-time employee is versus an independent contractor. And, and those drivers for Uber or Lyft or these other gig type, they meet those criteria as FTEs, right? Not as independent contractors. And so we think it's a hustle. And so, yes, we, we've, we're looking to change that at the national level. But again, corporate America subverts that. Look at California. I believe it was, what was it, Randy? Prop 22, I believe, where they were fed misinformation like is standard about a ballot question. And so the people mistakenly voted in favor of it, said, oh, yeah, this is, well, that's, if it happens in California, it can happen anywhere. And that scares the heck out of us. And what is it? It's to maximize profits for the shareholders, a multi-billion dollar corporation, you know, which was on the verge of IPOs, which I think they are now publicly traded. So what's the end game? Is right, is for all these shareholders, you know, foreign national, 35% of our stock market is foreign national corporation, foreign held. I mean, is that really to make them more wealthy or is it to provide the basic necessities, the human needs of our workforce? So that, that's the question. And, and we know where we stand on that, organized labor. Mm-hmm. So the goal is not necessarily to fit into the new normal, but to get us back to what you think the normal should be? Exactly. And recognizes full-time employees, whether it's short-term or not, right? And they should have rights to collectively bargain, to organize, to make a fair share so that, you know, all the money doesn't funnel up, right? There's no such thing as trickle down. Let's get that straight. We've tried that for 40, 50 years now. That's been a disaster, right? Economic instability. It's been a merry-go-round for workers and it's been a landslide for corporations, it just doesn't work. In fact, if you look at what our founding fathers created this country, it was to get away from the feudal system, right? But it was great if you were a king, queen, lord, duke, baron, earl, but it wasn't so hot if you were a peasant, right? So trickle down doesn't work. Let's get that straight. Given corporations tax cuts and their bad behavior of saying, we're going to leave your state unless you give us a bunch of tax abatements, or we're, going, we're wooing another state because we're starting up a satellite, is bad policy because that shifts the tax burden onto the local small family businesses and onto the local residents. They pay higher property taxes, they pay higher sales taxes, higher fuel and energy taxes, a higher modified business tax on our businesses. That's unsustainable. Corporate America needs to stop 
shirking their responsibility and shifting it onto the American populace. It's damn time. We need to stop that. And hopefully this new infrastructure bill will be, you know, it will address some of that. Are there expectations that this new bill is going to have some kind of positive effect for organized labor? There is, at least in the public sector This that I was thinking of. If we can get corporations have been offshoring their addresses for decades, 80-something percent, the top Fortune 500 corporations, we're, we're talking, you know, I don't know, half a trillion dollars a year in, in revenue that the, would should go to the U.S. Treasury to be able to build roads, bridges, tunnels, you know, build infrastructure, provide services such as public safety, public health, public education, public transit, all those commons that make commerce thrive. They're not paying for it, but they're wearing it out. They're wearing the heck out of it. So it's time that they pay for that. So I'm optimistic that if, you know, they don't find some loopholes to not pay, that this will really build a a brighter and you know, America, it'll build America, it'll build back better. You know, it really is part of Biden's policies, you know, and his cabinet members vision for this country. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about the kind of big picture of how the government as a whole or how these big corporations are already these existing unions operate and should operate. But to take it down to kind of the individual level, how can the typical worker basically dip their toe in the water, learn more, take some action? What are those first steps? Great question. Well, you can always reach us at info at nnclc.org. We also have a website that Wendy does a fantastic job. It's nnclc.org as well. <laughs> and um, Go to our website, get involved. We have monthly meetings. It's the second Wednesday of every month. Uh, we can make you a guest. You can come in as a guest and see what we do in the exchange of information. It's 6 p.m. on Wednesdays via Zoom. Those links will sometimes be up on our social media site. We have a social media site, Northern Nevada Central Labor Council on Facebook. Just give us a, a holler. We'll help guide you through that process. We have affiliates that are looking to organize and, and grow the labor movement. So we can help you with the process of getting started. Gotcha. And then outside of just the traditional industries and government services that are unionized, there's also things like tenant unions, and I know student worker unions that are outside the normal model of what we think of as labor unions. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the expanding scope of unionization, especially I think around things like tenant unions? That's something here in Reno, our housing prices are kind of through the roof. And one of the solutions I've heard floated, I don't know if this actually exists in other cities, but maybe like building wide or however, these kind of tenant organizations work to use the same kind of strategy of negotiating power? Is that something that's on the radar of um, your Central Labor Council or the people you work with? We don't work directly with tenant unions or associations yet, but we understand the ability to have a robust workforce is their ability to live in the communities they work. We absolutely get it. So we've been on kind of the front lines. The AFL-CIO has a housing investment trust just for that purpose. It's union-built housing. It's more affordable housing. It's a fund that comes to play. And we're implementing it right here in our own neighborhood in conjunction with the Nevada State Treasurer's Office. We're looking at building some projects here uh, in Reno that'll have affordability to them. And not like you hear in the private sector, you know, of affordability with opportunity zones, which rarely has panned out across this nation. Uh, We mean it when we say that. So we're keeping our eyes on it because it's critical to us 
if our workforce can't afford to live here, then you're not going to have services. You're not going to have goods. You're not going to have productivity. It's going to, it's going to dwindle. It, we can't just be a retirement haven. It's just not possible for uh, Nevada to s- survive long-term if we we're just a tax shelter haven and a retirement haven. It's just not, it's not, a, it's a bad recipe long-term. So yeah, it's on our radar, affordable housing. We have many constituency groups we work with, Faith in Action, Battleborn, Indivisible, for our future. And this is one of the number one topics is affordable housing. Uh, people want goods and people want services and we, and we are all for it. Our, our, our job in, in labor is full employment, right? A robust economy, a long-term stable economy. And a critical key part of that is workforce housing. If you don't have it, good luck. Your community is not going to thrive. So I hope I answered your question on that. Yeah. One other question. I want to talk about Labor Fest too, but one other question just about how Nevada's kind of labor organizing is the political part. So we talked a little bit about, you know, endorsing candidates or trying to have this political influence. And I know that the culinary union has a lot of power. Every time it's an election season, there's always talk about like, who is the culinary union endorsing? What are they saying about this healthcare plan? And I always associate that mostly with Las Vegas. Las Vegas is kind of the center of our culinary union power. What's it like in Reno? We also have a tourist economy, not quite as much as Vegas, but, you know, quite a bit of tourist economy in Reno. How do you see that kind of political influence of the Reno area on the uh, political part? Yeah, it's it, it drags it down just a little bit. There's ample opportunity. And I think what we just need is more numbers and um, more leadership up here in Northern Nevada, have more conversations, and we can build out our culinary unions, our SEI unions, you know, for our hospitality workers, just like they've done in the South. And prices aren't going to go up. It's not going to be the end of it. It's just like they said, you know, they being corporate America, the tycoons of industry said when we took children out of the labor force. Oh, good Lord, you know, we're not be able to afford anything more. Well, that was nonsense, right? So I think there's ample opportunity for that. It's just a matter of manpower for us to be able to do that. They've had their hands full in Las Vegas for quite a long time with the battles. And so to just to provide that extra educational that leadership, that successorship has been a tremendous strain on our culinary workers. That coupled with COVID, that coupled with layoffs, just getting them to survive. Uh, we went, Our own uh, Nevada State AFL, so AFL-CIO has a beneficiary fund. It's called ULAN, United Labor Association of Nevada. And so in these downturn economies, we provide food. We provide gas cards just so that our, our workers can survive and hang on until those jobs come back. And call it, we worked hand-in-hand with culinary. We advocated for them to make sure they had a right to return to work which it does seem archaic in this day and age, right? seems rather draconian, draconian that you have to pass a bill that says you have a right to return to your job. I mean, that's where we are in this country. What is, so that's what organized labor does. We are the counterbalance to that, right? We are, we are job security, long-term economic stability. So we're, you know, we're, we're the best you know, free market tool out there, in my opinion. Labor Day is also our labor festival here in Reno is also about building up a 501c3 beneficiary fund for the same purposes in our downturn in our economy, which we're going to have again, Nevada is a cycle of busts and booms, busts and booms. Uh, we got to make sure we take care of the workers. Why? They'll leave. They'll go somewhere else. Two thirds of our skilled labor workforce left uh, during the last great recession. That's bad. When it comes back, no one knows how to do anything. We're scrambling to get stuff done. So it's a a nice stopgap. So Labor Day Festival on Labor Day 
uh, this September 5th from 11 to 4 p.m. Idlewild Park. There's free parking downtown at Virginia and Court Street. And then RTC, one of our sponsors, uh, is going to provide free bus shuttle from that free parking over to the venue at Idlewild. It's uh, Route 16, I believe it is. So, you know, and shout out to all of our sponsors, our, you know, our big ones like Envy Energy. They always come through for us. Waste Management, RTC, and on and on and on. They're, they're, just take a look at renolaborfest.com. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the event itself. So this is the first time that you've had this Labor Fest event here in Reno. I know you've done like marches and stuff in Virginia City around Labor Day, but this is the first time you're doing, uh, you know, exclusively labor oriented event in Reno. So tell me about what the Labor Fest will look like. What do people see? What can they expect if they go there? What they'll see is they'll have a great time. Uh, we have food trucks. We have a beer garden area. We have a kids zone with ample opportunity to bring your children down and have a great experience, whether it's a climbing wall or games or face painting. And what, one of our letter, car- letter carriers on booths has a cornhole toss. I mean, it's just going to be a great time to be in the park and celebrate work, right? The value of work and workers in, 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 our, in our state, in our nor- northern Nevada specifically, you know, and, and the United States is always in the top five in productivity around the world. And so we want to acknowledge that, right? And if you discount the two smaller, I think it's Luxembourg and, or, you know, I can't remember the other two small, it's Germany, France, and the, and the United States. The top product productivity in the world, our workers should be recognized for that. And that's what we want to do here locally. So we're also going to have musical acts. We have Jelly Bread and the Jason King Band, great blues band. Um, so music all day long, a celebration in the park, and a little different than the, the traditional parade that is an historical. So history in Nevada. Um, I think it's then Governor John Sparks, whose city Sparks is named after in 1903, delivered a proclamation to have a Labor Day event. That was in Reno, and I think it panned out in Virginia City. It was held up in VC in 1903. There was the miners unions, the brewers unions, uh, carpenters and rail and and so on and so forth of of the the professional craft sectors of that period, 1903. And it was really a big hit. And that carried on for a little bit. And then, of course, we had World War I and World War II. And there's multiple interruptions along the way. But to my recollection, I believe it was in 2003, Governor Kenny Gwynn delivered another proclamation celebrating the Grand Jubilee event 100 years later. And, and again, it was held up in Virginia City. So, and we've, then it was off during the recession years and we brought it back and it really, we've, we've maxed out and peaked at that uh, with the Virginia City Tur- Tourism Agency. We really enjoyed our time up there. It was a great, you know, we had 500 plus people and a big barbecue and a lengthy parade and people got to really enjoy the higher altitude, you know, in early September. It was really nice, but, you know, it was a little bit awkward, I guess is a good word because it was Civil War reenactment days. And and the only good thing for me, well, not the only good, one of the positives of that is I got to, uh, you know, elaborate and say, yeah, this is great. It's nice to share the streets with the Civil War reenactors, which uh, confirmed once and for all that no man, woman, or child's labor shall ever be for free. So it was um, a fun event, but it was a little bit too much like Memorial Day, you know, for us, <laughs> not just a celebration of labor. And it had been our goal to bring it back downtown to Reno and a parade wasn't the first thing we thought of. A festival was to have more of a festive environment. And it's also a job fair. 
It's a job fair with the booths. We have employers. We have laborers groups. My affiliates have job information. Employers have job information. You can secure a good union job, be represented, uh, have a long-term stable career, and make a great living. So it's, it's a combination of things. We're looking forward to having a really fun time and a really productive time this year. Excellent. Yeah, no, I'm glad you clarified the kind of difference between the Virginia City vibe and the Reno vibe, because obviously there's some difference as far as the, you know, the look and feel. I like that it's a festival instead of a parade, because I think that parades, they have their place. But if people are looking for a job, you know, you can't get a job by flagging down someone at the parade. But having these booths, having the unions actually present to talk to people and educate people, I think will probably be more to their benefit than just the, the visibility of a parade, I mentioned. Without a doubt. That's what we're looking forward to, that exchange of information, talking to people and say, hey, are you interested in this or that? Or, you know, you know, what suits your fancy? If you're a young man or woman and want a job, uh, a career, excuse me, in a different field, come take a look. We have plenty to offer, uh, both in the public sector and private sector. They're scrambling to find FT, full-time employees, FTEs, uh, and there's ample opportunity. So come take a look while you're there, listen to some music, bring your children, let them run through all the kids zone. Idlewild Park's a big space. You know, we do recommend taking the free shuttle or the bus, uh, RTC bus route 16, I believe it is from the downtown parking area. Cause parking's kind of limited to the peripheral of the, the, you know, that event down there. So it's going to be somewhat limited, but don't let that stop you. Ride a bicycle, get a scooter, come on down <laughs> Get down there and have a great time with us from 11 to 4. We're also looking for volunteers for cleanup. We have a cleanup period from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. We're looking for some volunteers to help us clean up the park and make it return it back to um, the way we found it the day before. Excellent. Yeah, and you mentioned that there's all the family stuff, too, and that, you know, bring the kids. So I'm curious what the kind of cultural appeal of union membership is as well, because obviously it is a community. It's people working together, and that seems to be a big part of the focus, too, is not just your union, how it affects your job, but being in the union, being in organized labor is something you kind of identify with as a, a part of your culture. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of culture of organized labor and how that's a factor in making it all work? Yeah, it's huge. We're a family. We're a brotherhood. We're a sisterhood. We care about each other. You know, the, our benevolent funds speak to that. Uh, but more importantly, we care about our community. We live here. We eat here, we breathe here, you know, we coach Little League here, Girl Scouts here. We're involved in, in you know, religious churches, uh, services. Uh, this is our community. We want to see it be the best it can be, you know. And so it's, it's one of the greatest sororities or fraternities on the planet. And to have that common cause, to raise the standards of living and have a better quality of life, I can't think of anything better. So it's very attractive and very appealing, whether you're, you know, you're Doug Cannon, the CEO of MD Energy, or you're Kurt Howe, uh, who runs Reno Type, that has just a handful of employees, and they're organized, they're union, because he wants to hear from the leader of that union on what the boots on the ground think could be a better business practice and a better model. He wants that, you know, it cuts down on his time. He speaks to one person, he relays that all information back and forth, you know, and it's a, it's a mutually beneficial, you know, relationship, so. That's the culture, you know, for betterment, improvement, quality of life, brotherhood, family oriented. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. So where again can people find out the details about Labor Fest? It's on Labor Day from 11 to 4, Idlewild Park. But what's the website again and where can people learn? Renolaborfest.com. <laughs> 
I get my .coms and my .orgs. Uh, we're at also nnclc.org. That's in Northern Nevada Central Labor Council.org. You can reach us email at info at nnclc.org. And Rob and myself, uh, Wendy, will get it. And we'll discuss it with our board of trustees. The beautiful part of a union is it's never a unilateral decision. I'm the president, but I don't make anything unilateral. We run it through our board of trustees as a recommendation to the body. The body owns it. They vote upon it and they move that labor movement forward. So it's the workers themselves that have the voice, you know. Gotcha. Um, What did we miss? Anything you want people to know about union labor organizing? um, What's going on in our area? Anything we didn't cover? No, just come join us. You know, if you want to join a union, if you see the need to actively organize in your job, we can help you do that. You know, digital means and, and non-traditional non-trad- means as well, we can help you do that. If you're a business that wants to know more about the positive values of organized labor, come see us. Sit down with us. Have a conversation because we want that for you too. We want you to thrive and have a long, successful, you know, business. And employees are really a big part of that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I said, this is the first episode of this season, and I did an episode last season with Ron Kamenko from the Railroad Workers United. So we talked a little bit about union stuff, but it's really great to get to have a, a full episode about organizing, specifically right before Labor Day. You know, the timing is great for us to have this kind of conversation. I think a lot of people view most of the work holidays, Labor Day, Memorial Day, whatever, is just like a, a long weekend, a day off work, and might not understand the importance of it. So I'm glad you're doing a, a full event on Labor Day. And hopefully listeners have learned a little bit more about the the roots of organized labor and the importance of it. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Connor, and thank you, Lynn. It's been tremendous. And yes, I think you struck a chord with me. Our goal is to put the labor back into Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Right, it'd be akin to say, let's put the veterans back into Veterans Day. You know, it's to me, I can't believe I'm saying that, but we need to do that. It's not just a day where couches go on sale, right, or you know, go shopping. It's about the value of your work and recognizing how productive we are in Americana. And it's a great day to, it's a great time to bring that culture and theme back. Right, put the labor back into Labor Day. So thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mike. You're welcome. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoids, and special thanks to my guest, Mike Pilcher, for coming on the show. Really appreciated learning a little bit about organized labor here in Northern Nevada. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episodes, please do me a favor and help spread the word about this podcast. I've been doing this about a year and a half, but there are still a lot of people in Reno who listen to podcasts who don't know that this show even exists. So that's where you come in. Word of mouth is hugely important for a project like this. So tell your friends, tell your family, share posts on social media, let people know about the show. It makes a huge difference. I really, really appreciate everyone tuning in and telling their friends about the show. Again, if you want to support the show financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash renoites. This episode was produced by myself and Lynn Lazaro. And that's all I've got for you for now. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>